This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms, the 19th chapter. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Thanks, Dana. I asked him to read the whole chapter just to give you a context of where we'll be. And we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 11 this morning. So before I start, let's go before God and and pray together. Father God, I acknowledge this morning that I am desperately and delightedly dependent on your help to bring your word to this people. And I ask that you would do a work in their hearts as well to be desperately and delightedly dependent on you to hear it that the words that you have breathed out for us to look at this morning here in Psalm 19 would have a transforming, shaping, powerful effect on our minds and our hearts, our emotions, our actions, so that when we look at your word, we taste and see the goodness of it. Need your help this morning. We need your help this morning for the Holy Spirit to do that work in our hearts. For apart from you, we can do nothing. I ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, When I was 23 years old, this was back in about 2005, I was engaged to be married. I was working part-time, desperately trying to find a job in law enforcement. Um, So over the course of about a year, I applied for 35 different law enforcement agencies, and I'd get close, but couldn't quite seal the deal on that uh, job offer. But I had... What I thought was an inside track into two specific agencies, I thought for sure I was going to get hired by one of them. And in fact, the chief of one of the departments said that he wanted to hire me. So I thought, well, this is this is a sure thing. It's it's going to happen. But within the course of one week, uh, both of those jobs fell through and they decided not to hire me. And in that one week, I was completely uh, devastated because I had stopped applying for these other agencies because I thought for sure it's going to happen 
with one of these two. So in that, in that devastation, these questions were swirling around in my mind as to what my future was going to hold. Would I ever be able to get this job? How am I going to be able to get married and live on my own working at this part-time job for, and for the first time in my adult life, I was desperate, completely, utterly desperate to know the presence of God in my life and to know what in the world was he doing in this, in this disappointment. And so over the next two weeks, I read straight through the book of Psalms, all 150 chapters, day after day, I just read a chunk of it and worked my way through it, wanting to know what God was doing and wanting to have my heart and my mind uh, shaped by the truth that was in the book of Psalms in, in that dark time. That's how we ought to be coming before God. The, God's word is not like uh, this car engine manual or something's broken on our car. We need to figure out how to fix it. And we go to this manual and it gives us the answers to it. The Bible does do that, but the Bible is more meant to not be as much as a car engine manual. It's meant to be like a, a treasure map in which it shows you the path to what your soul needs the most, which is Jesus. And Psalm 19 talks about God's word being more desired than money. Our hearts ought to desire God's word more than money. And it ought to be sweeter to our soul than honey to the tongue. God's word ought to help you be shaped by having your thinking and your emotions shaped in such a way that it propels you towards godliness and great joy. It should not be merely as a way to fix your problems to make your life run better. So we're, we're going to do this morning, this is the beginning of three sermons on the theme of Scripture. Um, John and Mike will be preaching in the next two weeks as well on the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. But this morning we're looking at the power of Scripture. And we're going to be going through verses uh, 7 through 11 to see how God's Word ought to shape us and direct our decisions and conform us into the image of Christ. So as I wrote this sermon, I looked at two questions in each of these verses that are behind me. And this is what I'm aiming to answer. Number one is, what part of God's word is being talked about in this verse? And number two, what change, what effect should it have on our souls? So those are the two questions I aim to answer. Well, well, at the time that this passage was written by David, it was written to Israel in light of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible being given to them. We know that this passage is still applicable, still true, right for us today in 2021. And we know that because Paul quotes Psalm 19.5 in Romans 10.18 in the New Testament and applies it to the Gentiles, which is you and me. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is profitable for us. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5.17 that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. So when David here in this in this passage is talking about the rules and the statutes and the precepts. Um, we know that it's intended for us and it has bearing on us as as Christians today in this moment. This chapter in Psalm 19 fits into a wider context of the entire book of Psalms, which is broken up into five separate books. Psalm 19 is the fits into the first book of the Psalms, chapters one through forty-one of Psalms is the first book of all five books that contain the entirety of the Psalms. And in the first book of the Psalms, it contains prayers that David writes in in distress and statements of confidence in God alone for salvation. 
So we see in this first book of the Psalms that David is a desperate man that wants to know God and he wants to see his salvation. And in the first uh, six verses that Dana read in Psalm 19, which we're not going to focus on this morning, we see the, this inseparable link between God's work and God's words. God's work being what he's revealed to himself through his creation and through, and then secondly, how he's revealed himself through scripture in verses 7 through 11. We talked about this this morning, Berea, God's general revelation in his work in creation and God's special revelation in his in his word, in the scriptures. So when you step out, I mean, the first couple of verses of Psalm 19 talks about the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky above shows his handiwork day to day is pouring out God's speech. When you step outside after church into this world, you are seeing a world that is shouting forth the glory of God painted across this earth, painted across this universe. But that is a whole nother sermon for another time. This morning, we're going to look at starting at verse seven, God's special revelation through scripture. So let's look at verse seven. We're going to work through these verses line by line. Verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the question is, what is the law of the Lord? God's laws are his instructions and his directions that are given to us to live this life out. For God's people that God's law ought to be a delight. Psalm 1-2 says that God's people delight in his law. They love to do his will. Psalm 37-31 says that the godly have the law of God controlling their thinking. It's dominating how they live their life. I want to pursue after God. I want to obey him. I want to obey his commands. It's dominating how they're living their life. They want to be obedient. Psalm 1 talks about godly delight in God's instructions. So this is counter to the rest of our world in, in, the, in the secular sphere. So as a, as a cop, most people I've pulled over because they're speeding, don't like, aren't, their reaction is, oh man, thank you so much for pulling me over. I am so sorry I was speeding. I really want to be obedient. I love that speed limit. I want to go to it. I want to, I want to be obedient. That's not our natural inclination to the laws of, of, of traffic. We don't naturally delight in them and want to do them. We want to get there fast. We want to drive fast because it's fun. But that is not the mark of the people of God and how they orient themselves to God's law. God's instructions are their delight. And it says, what does it say that God's instructions do? It says they revive the soul. So my, my, my question is, in what way does God's instructions and his directions revive our soul? So imagine this. Imagine that you're going uh, out on a hike into the woods. You're confident. You know how to get to where you want to go. You're going to navigate there. No problem. You're going to walk through this woods. You you know where you're going. But all of a sudden, you're walking in these woods. The day goes on. This fog sets in out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, you're getting lost and turn around. And you don't know where you're going. It's getting cold. It's getting dark. And all of a sudden, the reality of you are lost sets in. And you're not sure how you're going to get back to your car at the parking lot, at the, at the trailhead. And then all of a sudden, you're wandering through the woods and you stumble across the trail and you see the sign that takes you back to the trailhead. What happens to you in that moment? That's, that's relief. That's, that's joy. There's a reviving of your soul. Like, I'm not lost anymore. That's what something like Psalm 42 does for our soul. When the fog of despair sets in, David instructs his soul, why so downcast, O oh my soul, hope in God. 
The despairing heart looks to the truth of God's word and worships God and asks God to restore the hope of his soul. So that those instructions in Psalm 42 are a hope to our soul. God's instructions and his law are like a compass and a map when you're lost. His instructions guide you. They guide your soul to delight and be satisfied in what is true and right in your life. It's like finding that trail when you're lost hiking. So in my life recently, there's been this period of time where I've been battling uh, discontentment in, in several areas. So what I did was I did a word search on contentment in Scripture and started looking through these passages. What does God have to say about what are his instructions? What are his commands for what my heart ought to do in being content in my life? And I came across first. Timothy 6, which there's 15 verses in that chapter that have to do with contentment. So I'm setting them to memory, meditating on them, praying on them. And what? how awesome is it that God in his infinite wisdom knew that I needed 15 verses in 1 Timothy 6 to battle against discontentment. So there's these 15 verses of instruction that I get that are my trail towards pursuing a heart of contentment in God despite my circumstances. That That is a source of renewal for my soul. And I hope it can be for you or is for you. So that's the law of the Lord. Continuing on in verse, set, in verse 7, the testimony of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So what is the testimony of the Lord? It is the demands of his law. So the testimony of the Lord is the demands of his law, which he has given in covenant with his people. So it's this divine, solemn charge that he has given to his people. Psalm 78, 5 says that God establishes a testimony with Jacob, that he was to teach his children and pass that on to the next generation. And in Psalm 119, 111, we're told that God's testimonies are our heritage. They are our heritage forever and a joy in our heart. So God's given us something like the Ten Commandments, which were given to Israel as a covenantal charge for them to keep. So in Israel keeping these commandments, it was an evidence, it was an outward evidence that they were God's people. And we see that God's testimony, that is his covenant law, is sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That That is that it's confirmed and it's faithful and it's firm. The things that you see revealed in Scripture... You can bank your life on them. They're true. The firm, divine, solemn charge from God changes our simple mind. So as you get your face in the word and your devotions, you're desperate for God to reveal himself to you as you open up his word. There's this divine, solemn charge that has the ability to change our simple minds by giving us wisdom. So when we pursue this, it changes our naive, our silly, our foolish minds Minds that are so easily in this life persuaded by shallow, temporary allurements of the world. And so just consider the magnitude of the promise that is here, that God's testimonies that you can read, you this morning can read, this week can read, God's testimonies change your foolish mind, my foolish mind, into wisdom. We're being transformed. That is the power of God's word, is to transform our minds to pursue after wisdom. Psalm 119, 130 says that the unfolding, think about what that word means, the unfolding of God's words give us light. 
It imparts understanding to the simple and wisdom to the inexperienced. So God's word is like night vision. It illuminates your path, your way in, in the darkness. God's, the Ten Commandments are like night vision, navigating this world that is just locked in darkness and sin. So that's the testimony of the Lord. Let's look at verse 8, the precepts of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts are what God has mandated to be done. So they're like, like statutes. Precepts are what God has mandated to be done. Psalm 119.4 says that we are to pursue these precepts diligently. That is how we ought to orient ourselves towards the thing that, things that God has mandated for us to do in his word. We're to pursue them diligently. So the question is, how can God's mandates cause our heart to rejoice? That might be counter, it might not be your natural reaction. Oh, God's mandated me to do something. That just causes my heart to be glad. That's how we ought to orient ourselves to God's mandates. So my question is, how does that happen? Uh, when I first became a cop, I remember going to some of these calls that were just complicated. Um, they were layered. There was a lot to try to figure out. It was a mess. I was getting different stories from different people. And I'd get to the, the scene and either car crash or uh, fight or whatever. And just, just chaos everywhere. And being absolutely overwhelmed with how to deal with this call. What, what do I need to do? Do I need to uh, make an arrest? Do I need to write a citation? Do I need to, um, what decision needs to be made in this, in this absolute mess of a call? But I learned that the better I knew the criminal statutes, this, this book that seemed so dry in school that laid out the criminal statutes, things like what the definition of an assault is, what the definition of a burglary is, what the definition of a DWI is, these things that seemed fairly dry, uh, all of a sudden became really important because I realized that the better I knew these statutes, the things that the state of Minnesota mandates you do as a citizen to keep the law were applicable to help me unravel this complicated situation. So the better I knew the statutes, the better I knew what to ask, better questions I knew to ask of a suspect or a victim. And then when I knew how to gain that specific information, I was able to make a decision, whether it would be to make an arrest or write a citation or make a decision I was able to navigate through this complicated situation. And, and as I did that, there was a confidence that came from building up these, that experience that gave me, there was a certain kind of, happiness might not be the right word, but a certain kind of um, yeah, happiness or enjoyment. Like, okay, this is a mess, but I know how to deal with it because I know these, these statutes. So it's the same thing like that comes from, Winning a game or conquering a difficult situation, there's that joy that comes from that. And when we diligently go after God and obeying the things that he's mandated in his word, there is a joy that comes with that, of conquering that sin or obeying something that's difficult to do. And then you do it, you're diligent in doing it. There is a joy that God brings from obeying his mandates. The commandment of the Lord. So continuing on in verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the commandment here, if you look at the word, the commandment of the Lord, that is singular, uh, which refers to all of God's commands. The entirety of God's commands in Scripture, the whole or the sum of what he has revealed in the Bible. So it's not some of it, not some part of it. We don't get to pick and choose the commandments that we like and 
obey those and then reject the things that we don't like. But it's all of it. So let us, Grace Church as a people, read the entirety of God's word carefully and evaluate where we're falling short, where we're coming, we're not obeying the commandments of the Lord. Psalm 78, 7 says, Keeping God's commandment is the way that we don't forget about God as we go throughout our lives. So there is a way, as you put God's commands before you, and you seek to live them out day after day after day, and you're not simply obeying what God has called you to do. You're keeping God before you in your relationship to him. As we keep God's commandments, we are being reminded that God is at work in our lives, changing our hearts and our minds. This helps us fight indifference towards the things of God. It keeps us from coasting, keeps us from floating through life. It helps us go on the offense by doing all the commandments of God. Uh, Psalm 119, you should read, if you read that chapter, it describes the commandments of God as panting after them. Like you're desperately wanting them. Like after, like you're running after them. It creates a panting. That's how we ought to orient ourselves towards God's commandments or meditating them on them day after night or running after them. So these are the ways that Psalm 119 describes how we ought to go after the commandments of the Lord. These aren't stuffy commands that we're meant to do to check boxes. These are things that we are to pursue and long for because they bring us joy in God and they bring us closer into the presence of God. The reason that this should be our disposition towards God's commands, so what is the reason? What's underneath us pursuing after God's command, the entirety of Scripture? And it is that they are pure. When you open up God's word, there is zero taint, there is zero impurity, there is zero imperfections in the word of God. When you open your Bible, you are beholding before you complete purity, which is good news when we live in a world that is just soaked in impurity. The word that you have before you is perfectly pure. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you put it before you, when you put the word of God before you, before the eyes of your heart, it enlightens you. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. We are given insight for living through the commandments of God. Just as, just as the sun illuminates creation so you can step out after the church service and see the world before you because that sun is shining its light down on you, so God's word gives you light, gives you light to the eyes of your heart. Now, in verse 9, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So if you start reading this list, commandments, statutes, precept, law, and then we get to the fear of the Lord. My question when I read this verse is, is how is fearing God tied to the words that we've looked at? So we've looked at precept, statute, commandment, and law, and all of a sudden we get to the, the fear of the Lord, which seems out of, out of place and fitting with that. List. Why is the fear of God in this list? I think it's probably because it's referring to God's law, which teaches us to have the proper reverence before God. So to give honor and be in awe of God for who he is. If you do not fear God, if you don't have an awe of him, a reverence for him, you're not going to desire to obey his law. What is, and some, then my next question is, what does this fear look like that we ought to have before God? And I think Psalm 211 
helps answer that when it says, serve the Lord with fear. So serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So this mix of trembling beneath the awesome, raw power of who God is, while at the same time being able to rejoice at his steadfast love and his mercy. So it's a heart that bows in worshipful awe and fear before who God is. So our sinful hearts do not automatically orient ourselves towards the fear of the Lord in this way. God's word shows us who God is and why he is to be feared. This pure scripture shows all that the earth is beholden, that all the earth is beholden to the power of God. There is nothing on earth that can thwart God's plans. That ought to cause fear inside of us. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word clean means morally pure. It's right forever. There is no expiration date on it. Your heart is wired to be in awe of something. As you go throughout your life, you're wired to be in awe of something. There's something that is capturing your affection and your emotions and your amazement right now in, in your life, whether whether it's money or power or sex, sex or success or sports or comfort, um, exercise, movies. It could be anger or bitterness or discontentment that fuels your awe. Or will it be the awe of God? So you can look at the heavens and the earth, like the beginning of Psalm 19 describes. Look at the heavens and the earth that are shouting out the handiwork of God in his creation and be in awe of who he is. Something will always capture your heart that's going to cause you to rejoice and to tremble with excitement. If it isn't God, it's going to eventually fade. It's going to expire. It's going to run out because everything in this world fades. The money fades, the power fades, the sex fades, the success The harboring of emotions against a person that hurt or wronged you fades. It's not going to ultimately fulfill. It's all going to fade. The grass withers and the flower fades. But what is the rest of that sentence? The word of the Lord endures forever. So let your heart this morning, this week, be renewed in rejoicing and trembling over the power of God. Verse 9, it continues, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the rules of the Lord, are that those are his just decrees, the righteous commands that he has given to us. And these rules are righteous altogether. That is, they are unite. When the word says altogether, the words of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That means they're united. They're not disconnected from each other. They're united. They're all true in one one another. They are just and right. There is zero injustice with the rules of God. We do not apply some outside standard to justify the truth of God's word. God is God's rules his, are self-evidently true. We go to them for truth. They are righteous because they are from him, the righteous one. And they are true because they are from him who is truth. Okay, kids, Lock into this for a second. So I was a kid once, and I know there's a tendency to let your mind drift. So I got a question for you. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. Just think about this in your head. Kids, how many of you love, just absolutely love, the rules that your parents have set up in your home? So think about that in your mind. What are, uh, emptying the dishwasher, sweeping, vacuuming, dusting, taking out the trash. My kids love taking out the trash. Like, what are the rules that are in your home? Think about that. 
And do you love them? Because that's how we ought to be thinking about God's rules. Now, think about this question. What would happen? What would happen if your parents removed every rule in your family? No rules in your family for one day. What would what would happen? You might be thinking that'd be pretty cool. But let's say, what if there were no rules now for not not just a day, but a week? No rules for a month in your family. What do you think would happen? Chaos. Chaos would happen. No, the trash would overflow. The dishes would be full. There would be disaster. There'd be your house would be filthy. There would be. It wouldn't be enjoyable. So the rules that your parents give you, while they may not seem fun or enjoyable, they are, they are helpful. Oftentimes we don't see rules as fun, but God's rules are true and righteous and good for us. Your parents' rules, kids, are good for you. So we've seen that God's perfect law revives the soul. We've seen that God's testimonies make wise the simple. We've seen that God's precepts rejoice the heart We've seen that God's commandments enlighten the eyes and God's fear endures forever. And then finally, we've seen that God's rules are united in truth and righteousness. So with all of that, how ought we to consider? What is our takeaway with this power of God's word? Well, that's verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. So this verse gives us two analogies for how we should orient ourselves towards God's word. And I've written this sermon in a way where that is the flavor of all these things that we just covered. But it's tasting and it's desiring. That Those are the two analogies that God has given us in verse 10 to orient ourselves, how you ought to think about God's word. Because God's word is more valuable than money, We should seek it more than money. Because God's word is sweet to the soul, we should be experiencing that sweetness just as the tongue tastes the sweetness of honey. God has given us money for living and food for our mouths in order to have a visible picture for how we should experience the word of God. So the question before you, the question before me this morning is, is God's word more satisfying to you than money? Is it sweeter to you than honey or pick your favorite candy? Is it sweeter to you than Sour Patch Kids? That's my favorite. Pick your favorite sweet thing. Money and sweet things exist to help us see the necessity of God's word in our lives. Money and sweet things exist to help us see the necessity of God's word in our lives. So in years past, we've um, gone to this. There's been a group of us that have gone down to a conference in Minneapolis every year. And there was a, a time where, uh, prior to the first session of this conference starting, uh, our whole group would go to a restaurant in Minneapolis called Fogo de Show. De Show, I think is how you say it. And we'd go there for lunch. So if you've never been to Fogo, I feel sorry for you because you should go. But it's a Brazilian steakhouse restaurant. It's pretty much like one foot in heaven. It's just endless, awesome meat. It's it's quite amazing, actually. Um, and I've never, I've never seen anyone take the experience of going to Fogo more seriously than Pastor Dave. So, <laughs> so days, be- I mean, maybe even like weeks before we would go to Fogo, 
uh, he would start thinking and strategizing about how he could enjoy the maximum amount of meat while he was at Fogo. So he'd like be like, all right, we're going to skip breakfast so we can get there for lunch, but we don't want to skip too many meals because then your stomach shrinks and you can't fit as much in there. So just enough not food before you go and eat so you can fit the most food in there. Um, so, uh, and I, so you'd have this like coaster too. And if it was gr- the coaster on your table was green, they would just bring you like skewers of meat and cut the slabs of meat off and they'd fall off in your plate. And when you had enough meat, you flip it over to red and then they don't bring any more meat. Once you eat all the meat, you flip it to green and it just continues and continues and continues. And in fact, there was one time where like he got to the end, like there was no more meat going into his, his stomach. And the guy came over and like, would you like more? And he just looks there kind of defeated. Like, I really want more, but I'm not sure. Probably not good for me. And, and the guy said, whatever his name was, the, the waiter's like, sir, we have like 30,000 pounds of meat back there in our meat locker. The house always wins. So he's like, flips it to red and he's like, I'm done. All right. So the point of the story, uh, the point of the story is that is how you ought to orient. That is the way in which our hearts have, should long for God's words and God's commands. Would they ought to shape our affections? We ought to look forward to them, anticipate for them, plan on them, taste and delight in God's word and in his commands because they are not a burden to us. They are life to us. They are like money in the bank and they are like honey on the tongue. And verse 11 says that in keeping God's commands and doing them, there's a great reward. There's a great reward in following them. It's the reward of knowing God more and glorifying him through a life that is well-lived. When I was 20, 23 years old, I was devastated at these at this loss of these two potential job opportunities. But I'm thankful for that because it was through those next two weeks and, and reading the book of Psalms that God's word was sweet to me and it was satisfying to the soul. So yet, in conclusion, the, the tragic reality is that we so often do not have this desire and this taste for God's word. Standing up here preaching this sermon, I'm preaching it to myself. I want to long for God's word more. We long for lesser things that fill up our day, whether it's our Facebook feeds or news feeds or money concerns or just silliness and trite distractions, and the list could go on. We allow the world to crowd out the word. And Psalm 19 concludes by saying, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So none of us this morning can stand before God and say that our words and our thoughts and our heart and our affections have been perfect before the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And that's why Jesus had to come as our redeemer. So Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus was our cornerstone, is our cornerstone. He is the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the word became flesh because all of us have rejected God's word and rebellion against him. All of us have failed to keep God's laws and his commands and his statutes and his precepts. And it is by looking to Jesus who offers redemption from sin that we can have our heart's desire to know the sweetness of being in right standing before God. So Jesus' death on the cross made the way for us to know God and to rejoice before him in trembling with the awe of his created world and in awe of his spoken word. 
So if you are not a Christian here this morning, look to Jesus, look to that rock. The word became flesh for the first time. And if you are a Christian, if you long, I hope you long to have the scriptures shape you in the way that Psalm 19 describes. I would commend to you to wrestle with memorizing a chapter of scripture. It's been my experience in memorizing a longer passage of scripture that it has an effect of shaping my my thinking and my emotions in a very powerful way. To memorize scripture, not not again, not just as a check in the box, like being able to say it and boom, move on, but to be able to do it in in a way that's soaked in prayer, that's pleading for the Holy Spirit to work what you're memorizing into your life, to turn it into prayers throughout your day, like that type of a memory. That type of meditating and memorizing on God's word. For, for me, the book of Philippians, um, Romans 8, Hebrews 11 have had a profoundly shaping effect in my desires to taste God in deeper ways. It's not easy. Uh, memorizing is warfare. It's a battle, especially if, if you're an adult and that haven't, hasn't done it before. But man, it's the payoff is sweet to the soul. There's two different apps that I use. Uh, one's called simply called Verses, and the other one's called Bible Memory. If you want to know more about those or some other ways and things that I've learned in my experience of memorizing longer passages of Scripture, I'd love to talk to you more about that. But I would commend that to you. You'll never get to the end of your life and wish that you hadn't spent more time memorizing God's Word. You're going to be changed. You're going to be changed by Bible memorizing, prayer-pursuing, Holy Spirit-empowered Meditation on the Word of God.